0: Hello, this is Brian Auten of Apologetics 315. Today I'm speaking with Tom Gilson of ThinkingChristian.net. Tom is an active Christian blogger and defender of the faith, and as a strategic planner for Campus Crusade for Christ, I think he'll have some good insights to share with us today about Christian blogging and thinking strategically about apologetics. So thanks for speaking
1: with me today, Tom. Thank you, Brian. It's a real pleasure to be on the phone with you here today.
0: Well, Tom, the first thing people should know is that you're originally from the great state of Michigan. But that important point aside, could you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself?
1: Yes, I'll be glad to. I I am from Michigan originally. I was a music major at Michigan State University, and that's where I came to know Jesus Christ. And I joined Campus Crusade for Christ staff immediately after college in 1979, which was at least a few weeks ago by my count. (laughs) <laughs> and, um, actually, right from the very beginning as a Christian, I was involved in apologetics because the uh, the two gentlemen that shared Christ with me, part of what they um, used as, to bring me along toward Christ was Josh McDowell's book, Evidence, The a Verdict, the first edition back in the late 70s. And then right after I became a Christian, Josh came to our campus at Michigan State in a very, very... Um, high motivation, high prayer, high interest, really well-done Christian movement event that got me really involved in, in thinking about these kinds of things right from the very beginning. It was, it was quite a good start. But I've been working in Campus Crusade in music and then human resources and most recently now in strategy in the years since then. Mm-hmm. I'm living in Yorktown, Virginia, just a few miles from, the, uh, from where the... Uh, the Revolution was won for the United States, and your your uh, listeners there in the U.K. may have a different perspective on whether it was won or lost.
0: <laughs> Didn't you spend some time in Southern California as well?
1: Yes. Part of that time was, was uh, 13 years, actually. I was in various cities in the Los Angeles, Orange County area, even a couple of years on living in uh, Big Bear Lake on a mountain in uh, Southern California. It's a very interesting place to live, uh-huh. and um, you run into all kinds of different thoughts and ideas. I, I kind of miss that mix.
0: So you run the blog ThinkingChristian.net, so tell us about mm-hmm. your blog and what got you started blogging.
1: I got started. I got started blogging in, I think it was late 2004, because for a long time I just thought that maybe there was something that I could develop. That I, that was untested and untapped at the time in terms of of writing. And I had always wondered if I wrote, where would I write it? And blogging came along as just kind of an easy answer to that question without any, uh, what you run into in blogging is, is you don't run into editors, you don't run into problems of delays and people, and, and people saying, well, we won't publish that. What you run into instead is, um, I call it whitewater blogging or whitewater writing. You run into an immediate response, which can be either very positive or very much over the rocks and the rapids. So I got started, and I found that it was fun. And that's really what's kept me going, and it is that I've enjoyed doing it, enjoyed sharing what's what's on my mind and and interacting with other people about what's on theirs.
0: So what led you to name your site, Thinking Christian, and what's your
1: goal? That's a good question. It's not that I was claiming to be an especially competent thinking Christian. It was from the beginning that I was hoping to encourage the concept of being a thinking Christian, that being a thinking Christian is not a contradiction in terms, that it's very much... Uh, the, the two concepts go together, and so the goal really has been to demonstrate that to the best that I can. What I what I write on is not terribly systematically chosen. It's basically um, what's interesting to me, what I think can give a demonstration of thinking Christian, of Christian thinking rather, and usually with. With my eye open to the fact that there will be non-Christians paying attention, because there have been from the beginning. Yeah. So what I want to do is represent. Actually, in addition to thinking, the other thing I want to demonstrate is grace gracious, or graciousness. That when you get into a dispute with somebody, you can disagree, you can hold your ground, you can be uh, very strong in your position and, and in the reasons you give for it, and the evidence and the logic, and so on. And yet you can be a nice person about it.
0: I do think that's one thing that uh, your blog, a hallmark of your blog, is, is it has a, a real good interaction and tone to it. And there's so many times where people might be right in their argument, say, but they just are abrasive and out to win the point. And it's almost like, are you listening to yourself? <laughs> do you right. realize the tone that's coming across in, in your comment?
1: Oh, Sure. I mean Paul told us to to let our speech be seasoned with salt, and um, you know, he was never hesitant about arguing for the faith, but he was also very insistent that that we that we take an approach that's not necessary unnecessarily unattracted to outsiders. The gospel has its own offense it's yeah. just the cross. We don't need to add to it.
0: He says uh, as well, you know, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And uh, this kind of a a picking-a-fight sort of style where things are written in a way to provoke or to poke the other guy in the eye, uh, I think it can be counterproductive, especially when people are using good arguments, because then that tone is ascribed to those arguments, and it hurts the good arguments, I think. Yeah. In your experience as a blogger, what are some of the other pitfalls that uh, you think people can fall into?
1: There are a lot of them. Um, I'll speak from experience. Probably the one that, that I have discovered is the biggest pitfall for me to fall into is to talk about something when I don't know what I'm talking about. Mm. And uh, it happened recently where I was uh, blogging on something where I mentioned a moral theory called desirism that's um, defended by... a a couple of folks, atheists named Alonzo Fife and Luke Milhauser, and they say I misrepresented it. Really, in, in fact, I don't know whether I misrepresented it because I hadn't studied it well enough in dance to, to really be confident one way or the other. And that was a mistake. And that's the white water writing thing. I got jumped on for it and I had to retract, which is Um, better than holding an undefensible position, for sure. So I guess there's another um, pitfall represented there, which is to try to hold an undefensible position as if you have to. Because if you're wrong or if you don't know what you're talking about, that's a good thing to admit when it comes to light. Along with that, I think, is the... uh, the the temptation to to always be checking your stats and to be trying to build yourself up and to and to be a winner in the wrong way, you know, among bloggers or in arguments or in in all kinds of ways, you can be the wrong kind of a quote winner as a blogger when really that's not what the point is. Those are some of the pitfalls that I've most run into, but I think the most significant one is. if, if I don't know what I'm writing about, I had either better bone up and figure it out, or I had just better not open my mouth at all.
0: Mm-hmm. How do you think that blogs can be vehicles for evangelism, or how can they serve as vehicles for apologetic interactions?
1: I think they're, they've they got an unusual ability to do that, actually, because what they, what they provide that has been hard to find in our culture is the ability for people of different perspectives to get together and talk. Our our culture tends to be fragmented according to where do you work, where do you and you can't talk about these things at work. And when you're not working, you hang around with people who tend to agree with you. At church you don't get into discussions with non Christians typically. That's not what church is for. Or sometimes on the other perspective you'll be at church and you'll be with people who are not uh terribly interested in the apologetic issues. There's a whole lot of a um, whole lot of that experience I think among people who have some interest in these kinds of questions. They have trouble finding somebody at church or in their local network to share with these things uh to share these things with them. So there's two aspects there. One is that blogs get us together with people that we can discuss with who don't agree with us and um, and have a fruitful conversation with someone and learn what they're thinking and let them learn from us. And the other thing is that they connect Christians who otherwise wouldn't be connected on this kind of a topic. And I want to add a third one, too, which is that I have received numerous, well, I shouldn't say numerous, I think they represent a numerous group of of, 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 of readers, emails from people who have said thank you for blogging about the truth of the faith. I keep reading the atheist blogs or the atheist forums and websites, and I wonder if there's anybody out there who has an answer, and thank you, there really is one. So what they do is, is they provide a presence on the web to answer the, other, the, the contrary presence on the web.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, as a strategic planner for Campus Crusade for Christ, what does that entail?
1: I work on a project basis with different ministries of Campus Crusade in the U.S. in doing planning with them, which actually it's either strategic assessment, trying to figure out where they are, what they're accomplishing, how they know whether they're accomplishing what they think they are, how they measure their results, that kind of a thing, or... If it's not that kind of assessment, it's actually the planning with them. What is it that you're trying to do, and how will you go about getting it done? What's your vision? What's your mission? What's your direction? What are your steps you're going to take towards accomplishing that? So as I said, it's on a project basis, so I'll be assigned to work with different ministries. Josh McDowell has been one. Global Aid Network, which is Campus Crusade's humanitarian arm, is another. Here's Life Inner City, our our Urban uh, Compassionate Ministry, is another one. And um, and so it's uh, uh, it's an internal consulting role, essentially, where I help people work through these things and then walk through the steps with them afterwards to see how they're doing with them.
0: I'm sure a lot of people have heard of Campus Crusade for Christ, um, but if they're like me, they, they haven't actually been involved with them or know exactly the different things that they, they are doing on campuses. So... Tell me more about what Campus Crusade for Christ does, and is there a way that people can support them or, or be involved in their work?
1: Sure. Campus Crusade is actually more than a campus ministry. It started in 1951 on college campus, but quickly, because the founders, Dylan Vonette and Bright, had a vision to reach the entire world for Christ, from the beginning there, their stated goal was to win the campus today, the world tomorrow, and quickly they branched off into other walks of life, like music and athletes and military. Now we have ministries that really extend into almost every walk of life. In addition to the ones I've already mentioned, we have ministries with diplomats at the United Nations and governmental leaders in Washington, D.C., and with community leaders, uh in a marketplace ministry that's not officially named right now, but it's it, it is a a community church um, business etc. centered marketplace ministry. We have the Jesus film that Campus Crusade uh, produced and in partnership with 1,500 mission agencies is, has been distributing to to actually where six billion plus people around the world have seen it, or at least six. We know we're counting some people. Twice in that, of course, we're, you know, up about that, because we don't make people wear a different colored shirt if they've already seen it once before or something like that. And um, and so it's all focused in one direction, which is the fulfillment of the Great Commission, that every person would have a chance to, to know one person who truly follows Christ is the way we put it, that the, uh, the presence of Jesus Christ in communities would be present there in a person who represents Jesus Christ and can, and can show who he is and, and and tell what he tells. People can get involved. Probably the, the best way is to go to our website, www.ccci.org, and look around and see what Campus Crusade for Christ is doing from there. And there are links from my thinkingchristian.net blog, too, to ways that people can get involved in the part that I'm a part of.
0: Now the element of strategic planning which is what you're currently involved in with Campus Crusade for Christ do you think you see a need for uh, strategizing or strategic planning of, of some sort to be done on the part of Christian apologists?
1: I've been involved with a network of people who, who do think that that's important It started for me with with prayer when I was well over a year ago praying about how God, well, just praying, and and God put it in my heart to pray for opportunities to help with apologetic strategy. And I ended up getting connected with Alex McFarland at Southern Evangelical Seminary and with some people at Breakpoint and others who there is a, uh, I think a groundswell just barely, uh, maybe on the, on the, verge of surfacing of people who want to be more effective with apologetics and here's the problem with apologetics is that as i look at the questions that apologists are trying to answer academically i'm going to overstate the case slightly but only slightly the questions are all answered there aren't any hard questions out there now i know that that's that's an intentional overstatement. But it's there's a sense in which the work of apologetics to to solve the hard problems of the faith and is is really quite far along. But Brian, tell me from your experience, how well is this connecting with the church and with people who really need to know it?
0: Well, I think that most people you would run into they're not going to know what that word means, right? And if they do, there's a negative connotation, and uh, and if it's not a negative connotation, then they think it's not for them. That's for you know the engineer types or the bookie types. So uh, that's right. that's kind of the impression I get.
1: Yeah, and and yet, it, I mean, and I I run into that the same way you do, and I wasn't very worried that you would have a very different answer because it's it's everywhere. And yet, I think of my son who's going to college next year. And what, it, it, suppose someone invites him to a party where there's going to be drinking and sex and the usual. And he says, you know, I'm not going to do that because I think it's wrong. Well, how much power is there in that? I mean, there's a lot of temptation with what they're offering. And it takes some strength to withhold it Especially when there's peer pressure What if he says I'm not going to do it because my parents Think it's wrong Well they're going to say hey Kid you're not living with your parents Anymore grow up And by the way that would be right on that one It would be time For him to make his own decisions What if he says I'm not going to do that because The Bible says it's wrong and I think the Bible Is true that's a little better. But how much strength is there in I think the Bible is true when somebody starts pressuring him, it's happened to me in college, and it's happening more and more and more these days, to say the Bible isn't true. Again, not much strength. But if he said, I'm not going to do it because God says it's wrong, he says it in the Bible, and I know that what it speaks there is true, and I know it for these reasons. That's powerful. So this is all my way of um, of illustrating why I think apologetics matters. It matters to people who don't think it matters. It matters to parents who send their kids off to college and want them to come out spiritually alive. It matters to the to the person who's wondering what's going on in their life and is God really there. It, it really matters. But apologists aren't connecting with that, and that's why I think we need to think more strategically about how to get the message to the people who who may not even think it matters to them but it really does
0: do you think that many people get into apologetics sort of as a byproduct of being questioned themselves or running into faith challenges themselves but then they get into it not strategically they get into it as a reaction you think that's part of the issue or
1: yeah i think so it's as if what we're doing is interacting with the questions Instead of interacting with the people who matter, by the way, the questions do matter. I am absolutely convinced that the questions matter. And um, and I'm all for extending the the academic area of apologetics. And you know, what I said before about the work being already done, that really was an overstatement. But we've got to do more than interact with the questions, which I think is kind of the approach that would, would be common for someone Like you just described, they've got the questions, and they grapple with the questions, and they deal with the questions, and they work the questions. But there are people out there besides just ourselves and the questions.
0: So how do you think this applies to those looking to do apologetics as a ministry or a vocation of sorts?
1: Well, that's a tough one because, as you well know and have said, there isn't a job description of apologist in very many places. There is in the Christian colleges, a few of them. And in some of the seminaries, there is in, uh, I know of one church that has a staff apologist. But, um, that's a big, a big gap right there. If someone wanted to get into a ministry of apologetics, they would have to be an awfully good as a full-time minister, of apologetics, they would have to be um, awfully good at speaking and writing and selling what they speak and write if they if they want to eat and pay a mortgage, because uh, that's a hole, that's a that's a gap. There isn't a place for that person very easily found. Uh, well, I wish I knew the an answer to that question.
0: Yeah, well, that's definitely something that people need to consider if they're. Getting all excited about apologetics and yay! I'm gonna to go to Biola and uh, they run out there and, and get you know a master's degree and thinking that there's a like a thriving job market. <laughs> right, it, it needs to be something that they really think carefully about and how that's gonna play out in their their lives and how it's gonna fit in with mm-hmm. not just oh, now I can use this as a ministry and this is where my heart is, but where's this fit in, in the overall scheme of being supported and not just scraping by?
1: Yeah, and probably the church needs to look at this. I mean, our pastors need to understand we live in a different world than, we, than, than the one I grew up in going back to my youth because the questions are harder. The questions are coming at us stronger, and there wasn't the, um, there was the depth of God movement in the, in the 1960s, I guess. There, there were some of these things. But um, the culture was still, at that time, more disposed towards Christianity. And now there's a lot more to overcome, and, and a lot of it's intellectual. And the pastors have got to get equipped. Whether they need to get a master's at Biola, I think a lot of them probably do, or a Southern Evangelical, or some of these other good schools that teach these things, but they've got to be getting equipped one way or another, that all church leaders do need to be equipped in these things.
0: Jim Wallace, if please convince me, he said, um, we don't need one million dollar apologists, we need a million one dollar apologists. And uh, it's a great insight, I think, because it just needs to be something that's introduced to some extent just all across the board, all across the church.
1: A different level is um, Southern Evangelical Seminary has been is working to try to figure out how to get started a, uh, a movement in churches of, of apologetics point persons, yeah, someone in the church who can represent these questions and represent the answers just as you know not every person has the gift of mercy or compassion or giving or leadership not every person's going to have the gift of teaching or knowledge in this area and and yet i believe that i can't entirely prove this out of scripture but i'm pretty sure that every church is supposed to exhibit all of the gifts so there should be in every church an encouragement for giving and compassion and leadership and teaching and knowledge in these areas. There should be a place in the church for this.
0: Mm -hmm. I also like what they're doing at SES with, say, Frank Turk's ministry with their Apologetics Instructor Academy and the different things that they're putting forth, Or, or Biola has the certificate program where if people aren't going for a full degree or studying full time in seminary they're at least equipping lay apologists to do the work say in a weekly Sunday school class or go around and give presentations at schools and things and you know i think that might be just another element that could be the most impactful if just more people went ahead and said you know i'm going to get myself equipped even though i can't do do this full-time or I can't give as much energy as I want to to it. At least I can get equipped in order to be used in some small way.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's exactly what we need. And I like the quote you gave from Jim Wallace, we need a million one-dollar apologists. And people are afraid of apologetics. They're, um, they're afraid that one dollar isn't enough. Even if even if you have somebody in the church that's saying, willing to say, you know, it's okay to ask the questions. I don't know the answers. Maybe there's a book in the library or maybe there's a site on the Internet. Even if we had that and said, you know, let's sit down and worry about this together, if that's a 50-cent apologist, I'll take him.
0: What are the roles do you see that uh, these graduating apologists can be used in the church?
1: Well, I know of one very creative role that uh, a friend of mine named Nabil Qureshi has taken he's a uh, he was actually a uh, a medical student when he came to christ out of a muslim background and God called him from one thing into something very different in more than one sense not just religion but also vocation he ended up uh Well, he got his his medical degree and, um, then he went to Biola and studied there in the, uh, the master's program in in apologetics philosophy. And now he's a youth minister in Chesapeake, Virginia, which is, he's the only youth minister I know of that carries an MB after his name. But what he does is, is typical youth ministry, but he also finds time to do things like speaking, and blogging, and he hosted a, uh, a regional conference on apologetics last November. So, I, th- I think talking with him, there's a sense that he, he has to, to try to fit the apologetics into the rest of his ministry. And yet, I'm sure that it's always present in his discussions with his students. It's always there in the foreground or in the background. That's one Creative way to do it is, is just get yourself a job in the church and then take whatever opportunities you can to uh, to, to host discussions or even as he did at a conference.
0: Now, speaking of speaking, do you do any speaking, and how can people book you if they want to uh, hear more from you at their church or event?
1: Yeah, I do speak, and I um, I was one of the speakers at that conference I just mentioned. Then be all hosted, and the way to contact me would be to go to my blog Thinking Christian and, and look at the sidebar, and uh, there is a uh, a link there for speaking and information there on how to get in touch with me.
0: Well, great! I just want to encourage the listeners as well along these lines of thinking strategically about apologetics, that there's something that you can do that's in your hand right now, whether it's continuing in your education or starting your own blog or being a coordinator for different events or getting the right materials into the the hands of the right people or encouraging your pastor, being a supporter or a giver of these ministries that are really making an impact. So I just want to encourage you to think strategically about apologetics and, and how we can affect not only our own small sphere, but the larger sphere as well. So, Tom, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. It's been real insightful.
1: Thank you, Brian. And by the way, I should have said this at the beginning, I really appreciate your website. The uh, the breadth of, of uh, networking and contact and, and that you provide and the the depth of the material, the articles that you have on there, you've really got a superior Primo website, and I am honored to be talking with you and to be having this contact with, with what you're doing. I really appreciate you and what you're doing.
0: Thanks, Tom, for, for the encouragement. I appreciate it.
1: Oh, oh it's terrific. you are you, you got a great blog, and it's one of the tops.
0: All right, well, we've been speaking with Tom Gilson of ThinkingChristian.net. Be sure to visit his blog and follow the links provided at today's blog post at Apologetics 315 for more information. This is Brian Otten of Apologetics 315, and thanks for listening.